Jesus, we thank you that you are faithful, that you are our only hope, and we thank you that um, yeah, that you love us, Father. And so now we just we just pray for your presence to uh, fill this place. We 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 need you here. We want you here, Father, um, and we just want to lift up your name.
turned into wine Open the eyes of the blind There's no one like you None like you Into the darkness you shine Out of the ashes you rise There's no one like you None like you Our God is greater Our God is stronger God, you are higher than any other Our God is healer Awesome power Our God Oh, our God
unravel me with a melody you surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies till all my fears have come and I'm no longer a slave to fear I am a child of God I'm no Child of God. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Love has called my name. To your family, the blood flows through my veins. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God.
I always think this is the part of the service where half the congregation gets up and walks out the back. And all the mass exodus of the children uh, heading off to Sunday school, which is a great scene from up here to watch all those kids uh, head to the back. Uh, Worship was excellent this morning. Thank you, team. Um, Nailed it. Uh, As far as topic, I don't really need to preach, or at least I don't need to preach that well this morning. Uh, You've already heard the message uh, just in that last song. And uh, this morning we come many with with heavy hearts with finding out passing events. And I didn't really know Vince all that well. I'd only actually met and talked with him a couple times. One of those times was just last Tuesday. Um, I and Nate uh, Taylor and, and Paula Kaiser had opportunity to slide over and do some yard work for him, some things that had kind of obviously been uh, had to be neglected just for where they were at and what they were doing. And so several over the last couple of weeks have gone over and helped in the yard. And as we're out there helping, Connie comes out and, and uh, she says, would, would you guys come in and, and help me? I need to move Vince. He slid down into the bed and, and, and com- uncomfortable and they just weren't strong enough to move him. And, and uh, so Nate and I went and we were able to, to slide him up. And the first thing Vince asked is, how can, we pray for, how can I pray for you? And we all went, yeah, we're good. And he goes, no. He said, I have time. (laughs) How can I pray for you? And he wouldn't let us leave until we each shared something that he could be praying for us for. And as I've gotten to know Vince, that was Vince. Always concerned about the other person. Um, Always, usually with a joke. uh, Some some wise crack that would make you laugh. And uh, even right up until, until the end. Uh, was that way. And so we want to pray this morning specifically for Connie and the kids. Uh, We want to continue to pray for Grant and Tisha. Grant's still in a lot of pain uh, from the surgery on his back. And uh, and hopefully that will continue to be alleviated. The doctors say he's where he needs to be. Um, he thinks he needs to be here right now, and so uh, stuck at home. Tish is in and out of the hospital, but uh, we just want to pray for them and, and others uh, this morning. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this morning we do come with heavy hearts, and, and we come, Lord, seeking your grace, seeking your mercy, 
Lord, Your power and Your strength this morning. Father, we pray specifically for Connie and, and, while, and, and the kids. And while the doctors were telling us this day was inevitable, we knew that You could heal. And Father, You have chosen by Your good, perfect, and pleasing will to usher Vince into Your presence. Father, we thank You for that hope. We thank You for the joy that he is experiencing. Lord, for the, the, the faith being sight, the love being personal face-to-face. Father, we just pray that Connie would sense that, that the kids would sense that, that they would find you as their peace. Father, help them grieve well. Father, make your presence known to them in very real ways. As Lord, only you can when you show up. Father, we continue to pray for Grant and Tisha and the physical needs that they are battling. Lord, we pray for the pain in in Grant's, uh, just from the surgery, that you would alleviate that, that the healing process would continue, that it would quicken. We pray for Tisha and the, and the, the ongoing battle she has had physically and in and out of the hospital. And Lord, just again with, with, their, with their family, just give a sense of comfort, a sense of peace. Lord, that you are battling for them. Father, we thank you that you're a God who goes before us. A God who stands behind us and a God who stands beside us that we need not fear. That we have strength in you. That we can have confidence in you. That we can find assurance and faith in you. That, Father, in you we are more than conquerors. Father, when we face trouble, help us in our weakness turn to you and find strength. Lord, for you have promised that you have overcome the world and that you will give to us the grace that we need in the moment for the moment. The power that we need in the moment for the moment. Father, the victory that you have secured is ours. Remind us of that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We've spent the last couple months walking through this incredible book, Nehemiah, really a kind of a personal diary uh, that Nehemiah wrote. Nehemiah, a man that was uh, a Jew in, in captivity in Babylon, and, and as, as the, the Persians were allowing the Jews to go back into Jerusalem after it had been conquered, um, after 70 years of exile, um, Nehemiah gets a call from God after he hears uh, the destruction that Jerusalem is still facing. After 70 or 80 years of people returning, that the walls are still torn down, the gates are still burned. And the people are in disgrace, they're in distress, they're troubled. And Nehemiah got a a vision from God, a, a call and understanding from God to go back and rebuild the walls. And we've been taking that that his story, the things he's been sharing, we've been pulling principles from this, uh, this diary of his 
uh, as we have taken on God's call, God's vision for Mac, for, for Muncie Alliance Church here, to rebuild this city. To see a renewal come to the lives of people. Not, not a physical rebuilding, although we believe that's part of what we need to do, but, but first and foremost, a spiritual rebuilding. And so as we've been walking through, last week we, we talked about that there were going to be obstacles, there was going to be opposition that we're going to face. And, and Nehemiah faced it. He, he pointed out that there's going to be outside opposition, that sometimes we're going to have to take on for verbal abuse. People aren't going to always like our message. They're not always going to like the way we stand. And we can see that in society now. That, that the Christian message, that the gospel, that the Bible is not nearly as well liked as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. In fact, now people are adamantly against it. And that's the message we're taking. That is the truth that we stand on. So we can expect some verbal abuse maybe along the way. We also said that there may, it may even come to physical abuse. We've seen this happening more and more around the world. That there's going to be these outside obstacles, this outside opposition that we're going to have to be ready for. But then also we said, and what really is sometimes the hardest thing to take is the inside ob obstacle, the inside opposition, that of our own heart, our own mind, and the discouragement that can set in. When things don't go the way we think they should, or we don't see the success that we think we should see. Sometimes we want to quit. We saw that the people last, last week, that after Nehemiah talked with them and encouraged them, that they had the will to keep going. That they overcame that discouragement. And this morning we want to talk about another obstacle. And that's the obstacle of fear. And fear is real. Let me ask you this morning, what are you afraid of? And audience participation. Rejection. Failure. Spiders. Dark. Crickets. Those are my kids, spiders and crickets. What else are we afraid of? Rejection. Being alone. Failure. Confrontation. Sickness. Sickness. Okay, we could go on and on, could we not? There, fear is a real thing. And we all battle with it to some degree or another, at some time or another. One of the things I'm finding is that the older I get, the more fearful I become. I don't know if it's just because I'm smarter. I see things for more of a reality. But when I was younger, I feared nothing. There was nothing to fear when I was a teenager, even into my early 20s. We were invincible at that age, are we not? And the older I get, maybe the wiser I get, and I begin to see problems. I begin to see the reality of the way things are. And fear has this way of, of overcoming us. We live in a day in a society that, that really provides many reasons to fear. The political climate, where things are going right now, where things are heading. There's not a lot of hope. Socially, with the, the almost non-existent moral compass of our society... That there's no way to determine right from wrong because we've eliminated 
any sense of, of moral absolute. It's whatever is right in your eyes. Whatever is right for you is right for you. Whatever is right for me is right for me. That doesn't work. That, that, that's a foundation that's, that's already crumbling before you even try to build on it. Environmental fears, technology, identity theft, natural disasters. I don't want to scare you this morning. But fear is real. There was one list of over 500 documented phobias. Over 500 documented phobias. Henry Nouwen, uh, priest, uh, author, professor, he taught at Notre Dame, taught at uh, several other um, extinguished uh, schools, said this, We are a fearful people. We are a fearful people. Now, there is what we call rational fear. And most of us would think that's where we live. We live in rational fear. Spiders are scary. There is a reason, there is a rational fear behind bugs and insects. That pretty much wipes out fear for me. That rational fear is rational fear is described as a, a clear and present danger. It is a true, it's not unrealistic. This could actually happen and it's right in front of you. You know God actually wired our brains with a fear response. He actually gave us a fear response in our brain to protect us. And I'm not going to get the medical terms right, so I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. The amygdala. Huh? Amygdala. The armadillo. There's a part of your brain that, that actually God has hardwired to respond to, to certain stimuli to, that, that creates a fear response and actually a fear memory. So that we, and, and this is actually given to us, so that if we are in a dangerous situation, before our mind even has time to realize we are in danger, we are already reacting to save ourselves. God is awesome to provide us that. Now, here's what can happen though. We also have the ability to train the armadillo part of our brain to fear certain things from the time we're young that maybe are rational, maybe are not. There are things that might happen to us that condition that part of our brain to fear. And so when we see a spider, when we see an insect... When we get into a situation of confrontation, because not everyone fears confrontation, not everyone fears spiders, not everyone fears the dark, not everyone fears rejection, but somewhere along the line we've learned that that's fearful and our, our memory has reminded, has, has taken that in and locked onto it. We can see this in, in parenting. That if mom and dad are afraid of the water, the child will more than likely be afraid of the water. 
because they've learned to fear it. If you, when you were younger, were bit by a dog, you probably now have a memory of fear that every dog is vicious. Kid in our youth group, 6'4", Big John. 6'4", probably weighed 250. The guy was just big. He came in and sat down in our recliner when the youth group was meeting at our home and he sat in the recliner and he kicked his feet back and I mean he filled the recliner. This is a big boy. Our chihuahua ran and jumped up on his lap. I have never seen a man that big move that fast and he broke our recliner getting out of it. Because this monster dog, who was the most gentle, loving animal. But come to find out, John just had a fear of dogs. Every dog. And there was no rational explanation. There was no rationalizing with him that this dog was not mean. This dog was not going to go for his jugular. He might lick it. But he wasn't going to bite him. That's the irrational fear. This is where we have developed a fear of something that really doesn't present a danger. And yet, when confronted with it, it immobilizes us. It stops us in our tracks. It, it keeps us from moving forward. And then if it, if it becomes bad enough, that if it, if it gets too... Then it becomes a phobia. Then it gets documented as a real uh, an issue, a risk that we, that we have to take. We all have fears. It's a part of the fallen human nature. I have two that pop up every once in a while. I have a fear of failure, which I don't know where it came from. But this idea that we cannot fail, that I cannot fail. I, I, I'm not a big risk taker. I'm a calculated risk taker. I've already thought through it. I've thought through what might happen. I've thought through what might not happen. I've thought through what could possibly go wrong. How can we stem that from going wrong? And then let's move ahead. Part of that is my, my systems process person. I don't want to jump until I thought through it. I also have a fear of illness. Someone mentioned that before. Fear of disease. I told you a couple weeks ago, I went to the doctor and he told me with my physical that I am, uh, medically speaking, extraordinarily boring. I have never had surgery. I have never been admitted to the hospital. I have never, I don't know, broken a bone. I have never had a severe illness beyond the flu for a day or two. I have never, this, why am I afraid of illness? I've never been ill. That might be why. I've never experienced it. And I didn't always have this. My mom passed away about 10 years ago from colon cancer, two-year battle. And from that point on, when I found out that colon cancer is hereditary, the enemy snatched that truth, snatched that fact, and said, I'm going to play with this guy's mind. And now, any abnormality, any pain, any joint, anything that doesn't seem to work quite right, 
can enter me into a tailspin. It can actually stop me in my tracks. It can ruin my entire day. I've become a WebMD addict. You get a pain, you look it up. You'd be surprised how many other people... You can type in any kind of symptom and exactly what you typed in, hundreds of other people typed in those exact same words. The ministry of reconciliation to which we have taken on a responsibility for the lostness of Delaware County, for the lostness of Ball State University to to expand into the ends of the earth. When we take on that ministry of reconciliation, it carries with it its own set of fears. It carries with it that, that fear of rejection. Someone mentioned that. That if I share the gospel, if I share my life, if I open up my life and who God means to me, I might lose a friend over it. They might think I'm nuts. Friends aren't going to want to talk to me. People are going to avoid me at work if they know I'm one of those. It offers the fear of, of not knowing enough, not having the answers. You know, if I start a conversation about God, if I start a conversation about Jesus, and they're going to ask me all kinds of questions, and I'm not going to know the answer, so there's a fear of not knowing. The fear of maybe looking stupid or sounding stupid. Not knowing what to say. And there's a fear of failure. What if I open up? What if I I share the gospel and they reject it? What if I can't lead a person to Christ? What if I can't introduce them to Jesus? What if I can't make a difference? There's safety in just not starting the conversation. There's safety in in just not talking about it. There's safety in in just not going there. Fear many times immobilizes us. So we play it safe. Nehemiah had to handle the obstacle of fear in an entire nation. Thousands of people building a wall. And fear was beginning to set in. This obstacle of this the Sanballat and Tobias and Gershom and the, the Adamites and the Ashdodites and, and those in the surrounding that didn't want to see the wall built were beginning to, to rumble, were beginning to, to, to... Rumors were beginning to stir that they were going to come and attack, they were going to put a stop to the wall, and the people were being fearful. Nehemiah had to deal with that. And as we look at, at chapter 4 of Nehemiah this morning... Turn, turn there. This is the principle that we have. This is, what, this is what Nehemiah had to get across to the people. Fear may not be avoidable, but it need not be definitive. We may not be able to avoid fear, but it need not define who we are and what we do. Fear may not be avoidable, but it need not be definitive. Fear is real. But it doesn't need to define you. There are real fears that come along with this task before us. This this reaching out, 
this transforming lives, this getting to know our neighbors, this idea of changing, transforming, renewing people, one household, one neighborhood, one block, one neighborhood at a time, carries with it some real fear. It would be easier if we just was this nice little church that we just did our things and, you know, kind of kept to ourselves and we were happy and we felt good. And that's not what we want to be about. We want to be a life-changing place. A place of renewal where people come and, and they find the truth about Jesus or, or they don't even have to come here to do it because we're going out there to tell them. Taking the gospel to Delaware County. Forming relationships with Ball State students and faculty. Maybe actually going to the ends of the earth carries with it fear, uncertainty. Maybe even just being in a small group with other, other believers carries some fear. Nehemiah chapter 4. Starting with verse 11, it says, And our enemies said, They won't know or see anything until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, Everywhere you turn, they attack us. So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall. At the vulnerable areas, I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. When our enemies realized that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah, who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, The work is enormous and spread out, and we are separated far from one another along the wall. Wherever you hear the trumpet sound, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work, while half the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, Let everyone and his servant spend the night inside Jerusalem, so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. And I, my brothers, my men, and the guards with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon, even when washing. Nehemiah says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yeah, we live, in, we live in, a, in, a, in a society, we live in a time when there's much to fear. When there, there's all kinds of warnings, all kinds of bad stories, all kinds of bad news, all kinds of proclamations as to what's going to happen, how this is going to be horrible, how this will end this, this will die, this will... And in the midst of all that, Nehemiah says, don't be afraid. Nehemiah did four things that helped the Israelites overcome their fear and continue working on the wall. The one thing he did was he knew the enemy. Look at verse 11, 12, and then 15. He says, Our enemy said they won't know what hit them. 
will be among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, everywhere you turn, they attack us. In verse 15, when our enemies realized that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work with the wall. Those workers that lived outside Jerusalem, they lived in those neighboring towns, Tekoa and, and, and uh, some of those other neighboring towns around, that they would come in for the day, work, and then they went back home. They were hearing all the rumors as to what Sambalot and Tobias and his, his schemers were, were coming up with. They, they knew what they were, were planning to do, and they came and they told Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah said, okay, we're going to, now that we know the enemy, now that we know what we're up against fortified the walls where it needed fortified, the lower portions. They sent in army. They sent in people. He was able to be proactive and strengthen the weaker parts of the wall where where they were most vulnerable. Let me ask you this in your life. Where are you most vulnerable? What part of your wall is is not maybe where it needs to be defense-wise? That the enemy, and we're talking about the, Satan, about the devil, about his schemes, that, that he knows and, and he can attack and he can hit there. Maybe there's fear there, there's weakness there. Where are you most vulnerable? How does the enemy work in your life? Because he does. He has areas where he wants to hit. He has soft spots that he wants to dig. He has emotions that he wants to toy with. He has fears that he wants to rise to the surface to get you to stop thinking about renewing this city. To stop thinking about sharing with your neighbor. To stop thinking about even getting to know your neighbor. Our enemy is not our neighbor's. Our enemy is not our co-workers. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. And in 2 Corinthians, while Paul is talking about the need to forgive others, He says, I have done this so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. We have to know the enemy. We have to know how the enemy works in our life. We have to know where the weaknesses are, where the vulnerabilities are. So that we can shore up that area, so that we are ready. We can become proactive instead of reactive when the attack comes. Because what we learned last week... Maybe it was two weeks ago. No, it was last week. If we are going to do work for God, we can expect what? Opposition. If we're just going to sit idly by and let the world go by, if we're not going to get serious, then Satan says, no threat. I'll just let them keep doing their happy little life. They'll feel good go through there. But the minute we step up and say, no, we're going to make a difference. We're going to take the gospel of truth and we're going to transform lives. We're going to share it with people who need to know. We're going to share it with people who are, who are captive in their own sin. Who are captive by the, by the enemy. 
And we're going to try to set that prisoner free. We're going to try to release them, try to, try to bring hope and speak truth into their life. The minute we do that, Satan goes, uh-oh, there's a problem. Where's their weakness? Where's their vulnerability? We used to do that in sports all the time. You wanted to know what the other team's weakness was, is, and then you wanted to cap- capitalize on it. If you're playing basketball and the guy can't drive to the left, you force him to go left. If you're a pitcher and you're going up against a hitter that you know can't hit a curveball, you just throw curveballs. You don't play to their strength, you play to their weakness. The enemy does that. The enemy is going to play to your weakness. We need to know the enemy. We need to know where we are vulnerable. We need to understand how the enemy works in my life. Because it's different for everyone. I can't tell you the answer to that question. How does the enemy work in your life? You're going to have to come up with that answer. You're going to have to know where you're vulnerable. You're going to have to know the little digs that the enemy gives. With me, failure and illness. He'll knock me down every time. He'll hit me every time. Satan is a schemer. And we each have weak spots in our wall. In our character that the, that the enemy is aware of and, and continually attacks us, continually hits us. Maybe it's not even a, a fear of, of some situation. Maybe it's a sin that you've never really allowed God to forgive. Or you have and Satan just keeps bringing it back up. Yeah, well, you used to do this. Remember when you did that? And he just keeps bringing that sin to the surface. And he keeps knocking you down with it. He's a schemer. Recognize when and where the enemy is approaching. Recognize where and come up with with the battle plan. Come up with how to defeat. Come up with truth. With scripture, with who God is, with what God has said. Jesus did that when he was being tempted. He always spoke truth right back to whatever the enemy hit him with. We need to learn how to fight the enemy. Fear is debilitating. The enemy knows how to push all the right buttons to scare us, to back us off. Paul told the Ephesians to protect themselves. With the full armor of God. Now that's another whole sermon series, but the armor is truth and righteousness and readiness and faith and salvation and God's Word. That they're all given to protect us, all given to to fight. And God's Word is even given to us that we might fight back. That we have a weapon, we have a sword. And like those in Nehemiah's time, we need to always have it strapped to our side. Ready for when the enemy attacks. Fear may not be avoidable, but it need not be definitive. And so, Nehemiah knew the enemy. Second thing he did is that he equipped the workers. Verses 16 through 18. It says, From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah. Who were, building, who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand, held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. 
Nehemiah gave them, all of the workers, everyone, the necessary weapons to fight back if Sanballat was to attack. If the rumors were true, if he actually came. And I'm assuming that he taught them how to use it. <laughs> Here's a sword. Good luck when the, when the army comes. Try not to hurt yourself. Watch out, it's sharp on both sides. No, I think he trained them. He had to have. You don't just give a sword or... A, and today, you don't just hand over a rifle to someone unless they've been trained how to use it. We're equipped with our sword. Paul called the sword of the Spirit. The Bible is the sword that we have. The Bible is what we fight with. We're, we're told it's a double-edged sword. Able to, 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 to dig in, to, to divide bone and marrow, to, to get into a person, divide right from wrong. One of the fears of, of sharing the gospel or engaging people in spiritual conversations is not being able to answer their questions. It's the I don't know enough. Well, we've been given a sword. And we have a certain responsibility to learn how to use it, to be equipped with it. Some of that it falls on the church to offer opportunities to be equipped. Some of that just falls on us. I need to work on it. I need to know it. I need to practice it. I need to understand it. I need to be ready for the answers that are coming. And let me tell you this though. Sometimes the best answer you can give a person is, I don't know. I don't know, but I'll find out. And then call Grant. <laughs> He's not here today. I'll pick on him. Grant's a great guy to go to if you need an answer. But that's just it. We, we need to know. We need to not shy away from not knowing. If we know there's an area that we're not all that up on, I don't really know how prayer works, I don't know how faith works, I don't understand, then we need to dive in. We need to personally take on the responsibility to shore up that vulnerability in our own life. None of us has all the answers. So we offer Wednesday night teaching to come and, and learn, to be equipped. Small groups are encouraged to, to walk through a topic or walk through a, a book of the Bible to be equipped, to equip one another. You can take the initiative and study on your own areas you feel less equipped in. 2 Timothy says, Be diligent, Paul is telling Timothy, to present yourself a proof to God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. That, that, that word, be diligent, means to exert oneself now. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean wait. It, it, it's a waste. Don't waste any time. Be diligent now so that you can correctly handle the word of truth. Correctly teach the word of truth. And that, that correctly teach actually means to cut in a straight line. You ever watch little kids cut with scissors? And then the teacher just right on the straight line. Why? Because they've equipped themselves with the use of scissors. They can cut in a straight line. They can stay on the line. They can make perfect cuts. We're to be diligent. We're to prepare ourselves. We're to not waste any time in equipping ourselves with the Bible so that we can make straight lines 
with the truth. That we can correctly teach the Word of God. Also in verse 16 through 18, we see the third thing that Nehemiah did to help overcome their fear. He unified the people. He knew the enemy. He equipped the people and then he unified the people. He stationed people in the weakest areas. He stationed them alongside families. He had, he had those who were trained to come alongside those who were weak. He said, fight for your communities. Fight for your sons and daughters. Fight for your wives. Fight for your homes. Fight for your neighborhoods. Fight for your block. Fight for your neighbors. Principle number five we got a couple weeks ago. Renewal begins right where we live and breathe. So we unify. We pull together. We don't have to go through anything alone. We are going to do life together as households, as families, as people. This is the importance of being in a small group. Because you don't have to do anything alone. You, you, have, you have been given people that come alongside you, that have your back, that stand beside you in the weak areas. You can admit where the vulnerability is and they'll gather around. They'll begin to pray. They'll begin to encourage. Fear of rejection, there's a group that always has your back. Fear of not knowing the answer, there's a group that discovers truth together. Fear of failure, it's a group that prays for one another supports one another. Fear may not be avoidable, but it does not need to be definitive. We've been given what we need to unify together. When it comes to evangelism, small groups work as a team. Jesus called Peter, James, and John while they were at work on their fishing boats. And, and he, he, when He called them and said, Follow me and I will what? Make you fishers of men. Now, when they understood that, when they heard, I will make you fishers of men, they weren't thinking, I'm going to give you a rod and reel. Because I doubt that Peter, James, and John, who made a life livelihood out of fishing, never used a rod and reel. You know what they used? A net. Because if you have a rod and reel, you can cast once... And maybe catch a fish. If you're like me, may never catch a fish. It's tough to find the fish with one hook. No matter what you put on the end of it. But if you have a net and a group of people to cast that net out over your neighborhood, over your workplaces... And together you pull that in, together you build those relationships, together you work. Fishing's a whole lot easier. It's a whole lot more successful. So when we say we're fishers of men, we don't fish with a rod and reel, we fish with a net. We do it together. And so small groups change households. They move from place to place so that I can get to know your neighbors, so that I can be in and, and we can be in your neighborhood. Nobody works alone. So Nehemiah knew the enemy. He equipped the people. He unified the people. And then he said the most important thing. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring God.
Remember God. Know your enemy. Know the enemy. Equip. Unify. And remember God. Remember the one who is actually doing the work through us. Remember the one again, not, it's not my job to save anyone. I can't. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the transforming. The Bible is full of stories of failure <laughs> with God's people. Of hardship, of struggle, of fears. Romans chapter 15, verses 4, 5, and 6 says, For whatever was written in the past, okay, the Old Testament, that's what he's referring to. Whatever is written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. Now, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement allow you to live in harmony with one another, according to the command of Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. Things were written in the past for our instruction, that we might learn from them. That we might look at the lives of Moses and, and Joseph and, and Abraham and David and, and, and all of the others that we, that we read in the Old Testament and we might learn from them and see their failure. Can you imagine what it would be like to read the Old Testament if a failure was never shared? One, it would probably be a lot shorter. But it also would not be inspiring. It is not inspiring to just hear a person's success story after success story after success story after success story. In fact, that's kind of depressing. Because what I learned is I'm not nearly as sharp as that person. And I have no hope of success. But when someone says they struggle, when someone says they had a fear, when someone says that they, they had a hardship, that they had failure, now we can listen, now we can learn. And what we learn in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament with the failures, Peter failed a lot. Is that God was right there giving them the endurance and the encouragement to keep on going. He's a God of endurance. The God of encouragement. Allow you to live in harmony with one another according to the command of Christ Jesus. Remember God. Remember who's working through you. Remember who's leading you. Remember who's guiding you. Remember who's directing this incredible initiative to transform and renew this city, this county. And where does our success come from? Principle number two. Success comes from prayer and confidence in a great and awe-inspiring God. It's not going to be some well-crafted, oh, I've got the perfect way to introduce someone to Christ. I'm going to use the, the four spiritual laws. I've got this whole diagram that I can draw out and everyone will accept Christ the minute I draw it out and I explain it to them. And they... No. Prayer. Confidence in God to do His work. That He's going to accomplish what He has set out to accomplish. That He will give us the endurance. That He will enable us to overcome the fear. That it's His work. Nehemiah knew fear. You remember back in chapter 2, verse 2, right before he was going to go to the king and explain what he wanted to do? 
And, and Nehemiah said, I was overwhelmed with fear. He knew what it was like to be overwhelmed. He knew what it was like to have a call of God on his life and think, I can't do this. I don't know if I want to do this. What if the king rejects me? What if the king asks me things I can't, I can't explain to him? What if the king says no and I fail? What if the king says yes and I fail? What if I go and can't rebuild the wall? What if I go and the people reject me and the people say, you're crazy, we're fine? Nehemiah was overwhelmed with fear. But throughout the, this, this book, throughout this diary of Nehemiah, we read, remember God. The great and awe-inspiring God. God will see to it. God will carry us through. God will make it happen. God is going to do it. God will fight for us. And that can do a lot to wipe out fears. When we remember God, when, when we remember and know how the enemy attacks us personally, when we can see it coming, sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, it just comes out of nowhere. But when we, when we unify with other people, when we equip ourselves with God's Word to fight the enemy with truth, to fight the lies with truth, when we unify with other people that come along and support us and hold us up and encourage us, and then when we remember that this God, great and awe-inspiring God wants to do it through us, we can do it. He will fight for us. That we can lay that fear down. It's easy to forget God in the crisis. <laughs> when I go to WebMD, I'm not saying, God, teach me. No. We can easily forget God. The truth often can get replaced by anxiety and fearful thoughts, and that is disabilitating. That, that, that disables us. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Turn with me. It's one thing to hear it, it's another thing to see it. Philippians chapter 4. says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything or don't be anxious. Don't have anxiety about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses every thought will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's as simple as that. It's as difficult as that. It is as impossible as that. That don't allow your hearts to be anxious about anything, but by prayer and, and asking, going to God, remember God. Remember who it is we're working for. Remember who it is that stands, goes before us, that stands behind us, that goes beside us. Who is making the way, who is giving us the call, who is equipping us, who is calling us into battle that He has already fought.
adversity, the battle, the struggle, the fear. The overcoming becomes a story of God's sufficient grace in our life. He said, our God will fight for us. Matthew chapter 14. Talking about the the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus had been teaching all day and the crowds were huge. 5,000 men, not counting the women and children that were there. And the disciples are saying, can you just send them on their way? It's getting late, we're getting hungry. We're going to go grab a bite to eat. And Jesus says, well, you feed them. How are we going to feed 5,000 people? It's impossible to do that. We can't do that. He says they don't need to go away. In verse 16, Jesus told them, you give them something to eat, but we only have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Everyone ate and was filled. Then they picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. A.B. Simpson on this verse, on these verses says, Bring them here to me, he replied. He said, Are you encompassed with needs at this very moment? And almost overwhelmed with difficulties, with trials and emergencies, we might add fears? These are all divinely provided vessels for the Holy Spirit to fill. And if you but rightly understood their meaning, they would become opportunities for receiving new blessings and deliverances which you cannot get in any other way. Bring these vessels to God. Bring your fears. Bring your struggles. Bring your difficulties to God. Hold them steadily before Him in faith and prayer. Keep still and stop your own restless working until He begins to work. Do nothing that He does not Himself command you to do. Give Him a chance to work and He will surely do so. And the very trials that threaten to overcome you with discouragement and disaster will become God's opportunity for the revelation of His grace and glory in your life. We have to pray with our eyes on God, not on the difficulty. Remember God. Know the enemy. Become equipped. Unify with one another. And God will fight for us. Father, this morning, we come a fearful people in many ways. Father, we need your encouragement. We need your endurance, your promise. You are a great and awe-inspiring God that you go before us. Father, we, we have a task in front of us as a church, as individuals, as a people, as your children, that is greater than all of us together. There is fear involved. This morning I want you to lay that fear before God. 
whatever the fear. Maybe the fear doesn't have anything to do with reaching the lost of Delaware County. It's a fear you've just struggled with. It's a fear that at times has, has become debilitating. Or at least deflecting. Discouraging. Kept you from experiencing grace. Admit it to God. Father, this morning, we want to see victory. We want to know that you have overcome. That even with with this fear in front of us, that you will equip us, you will encourage us, you will guide us, you will direct us, you will give us victory. That we need not fear. That we can cast all of our anxieties on you. Father, you have promised that if we we cast all of our cares on you, that, that you will care for us. Father, that you are concerned for us. Lord, I pray here this morning if there's anyone here who who has lived outside of a relationship with you, outside of knowing what it means to be loved by God, to be cared for by God, that Lord, they would give that fear, that they would give that, that anxiety to you, accepting your forgiveness, your righteousness, your grace. Father, this morning, may we leave in victory. In Jesus' name, amen.
that one more time. weapon we have that Satan has no remedy for is prayer. He can't battle prayer. He has no defense against it. He has no scheme unless he can keep us from it. The first Wednesday of every month we have established as a prayer meeting night that we're going to come and we're going to unify. We're going to come and we're going to equip in prayer and we're going to spend time in prayer together for this task that is before us. This Wednesday is the first one of those. Uh, This Wednesday night, we're going to come. We'll have a light meal at 6 o'clock. Come for the meal. Stay for the prayer at 7. As as we come together to to do battle for this county, for this campus, to the ends of the earth, to renew lives. I want to leave you with this. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare His own Son, but offered Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or any other fear we come up with? Because of you we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than victorious through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Take that this week. We'll see you Wednesday night.